This is a KPRC Local 2 News Update. Local 2 investigates church pastors going public. This is a KPRC Local 2 News Update. Local 2 investigates church pastors going public as atheists. It sounds unbelievable, but it happened at a church right here in Houston. And more than 270 church leaders across the country have now joined a new group of clergy that no longer believe in God. And are you going to go preach next Sunday? With um, I'm, I'm going to go back next week and uh, meet with my leadership and talk about where we're going to go from here. We don't possess any divine help, but the good news is we don't need it. You don't need it. You already possess the power of relationship. Everybody says, oh, how did you lose your faith? I didn't lose my faith. I feel like I graduated from the traditions of my family. Well, when Richard, uh, my, my colleague Rich, uh, showed me this, I said, you can't make the stuff up. <laughs> Honestly, you can't make it up. He shared it with me this week, and, and he said, I think, you, you know, you've been saying this, but here's a Exhibit A. This is going on, and, and, and for me, it doesn't discourage me at all. Because if we are entering into this great apostasy that the Bible talks about before the return of Christ, I want to lift up my head and say my day of redemption is drawing near. Amen. Amen. I don't think any of us doubt that we are going through a time of confusion in our culture, moral confusion, biblical confusion, but confusion. The so-called progressive Christianity is now infiltrating and seducing so many called evangelical churches as they did 50, 60 years ago in the mainline denominations. In fact, in 2005, there's a, a media outlet known as the um, Daily Beast. <laughs> and Daily Beast headline question was, does Christianity have a future? And I shouted back, yes, it does. Yeah. Some, even in the church, are talking about we need to reinvent Christianity. But in reality, beloved, listen to me, this is not new. This is not new. The first century Christianity and the 21st Christianity, the greatest calamity, the greatest uh, problem that we've faced it is from within. It's never from persecution. Per persecution always strengthens the church. The church in China more than quadrupled during the so-called persecution of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, it's not atheism. These jokers, they're not threat to the church. Uh, it's not even from the godless culture. It's not, it's not from uh, opposing religions. It is not. The truth is, these external attacks strengthens us and makes the remnant, these are the ones remaining in the faith, stronger than ever. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ always have been internal. Always. The greatest threat to the Christian church always has been from uh, those who claim to be Christians or Christian leaders and Christian denominational heads uh, and, 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 and 
de deceptive church pastors and, and deceptive preachers and false teaching and preaching. And that is why they want to reinvent the church. They want to reinvent Christianity, while in reality they are trying to destroy biblical truth. If there's one person who fully understood that danger, and if you're a historian or a Bible student, you realize that if there's one person who really understood this, I mean understood it by revelation, is the Apostle Paul. And this is why this understanding and the combat of that, of that dilemma is found in his very last epistle, the very last letter that he wrote from the prison, from the dungeon that I show you the picture of where he was, and probably within days of writing that epistle, he was beheaded and died. Here's a fact. Most of the defection from the truth starts with confusion. Did you get that? Let me repeat it. Most defection from the truth starts with confusion. Confusion about what is right and what is wrong. Confusion about sexuality and so-called sexual orientation. Confusion about gender identity. Just create confusion. Who is the God of confusion? Satan. He creates a confusion so that people will throw their hands up in the air and say, Michael, I don't know what is right and what's wrong anymore. <laughs> As a matter of fact, a person I know, not from this church, whom I thought was a believer and was talking to me just not long ago. And he said this, he looked at me and said, Michael, I just don't know what is right and wrong anymore. That's what the God of confusion does. He first creates the confusion. But God uses this. As far as I'm concerned, I'm delighted to, to, to see that God is really beginning to separate the sheep from the goats. Are you noticing that? <laughs> he's, he's really, I mean, we're seeing it right before our own eyes. We know. We know whom I have believed. And I know that he's able to keep that which he's committed to us until that day. See, the moment the confusion starts and begins to uh, spread around, particularly in, among so-called churches, you know what happens? I think I visualize Satan and all his demons down in the pit popping the champagne corks, and they're high-fiving each other. They don't know, well, they do know, <laughs> that hell is waiting for them, that the lake of fire is waiting for them. So in this series of sermons, we're calling it Don't Ever Give Up. And if you haven't been with us, download the messages, 9 o'clock, the same message Jonathan preached, the same message I'm preaching here at 10.30. But we don't compare notes, because I want them to preach to younger generation, I'm preaching to my older generation. <laughs> so as we kind of mix the two together and, and begin to look into the future, I want you to download them, watch, listen, both of them if you want to. Whatever you do, whatever you do in the remaining year of your life, listen to me, don't ever give up biblical truth. Don't ever be tempted. Don't fall for the gimmicks. Don't get sidetracked by silly and useless arguments and debates. Don't be tempted to be dragged 
into debating some foolishness that has nothing to do with salvation. Don't fall in the temptation of wasting your time and your life on people who want to confuse you. Say, thank you very much. I have important work to do, just like Nehemiah. You know, when Sambalat and Tobiah came to Nehemiah, I said, come on, let's negotiate. (laughs) He said, no, I'm too busy. I'm doing God's work. No negotiation. No discussion. And here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, turn to it with me, please. Chapter 2. We looked at the first chapter. Now we look at chapter 2. Paul gives Timothy three imageries to help him understand how to stand for the truth and how to invest that truth into others. Three imageries. One is that of a soldier. The other is that of an athlete, a farmer, and an athlete. Now, I want you to uh, start thinking with me, particularly in verse 1. But before I get to that, as I was reflecting, you know, sometimes… You know, when you get a little older, you kind of begin, uh, not nostalgic, I'm not a nostalgic person by nature, but, but I reflect. I was reflecting all week about my own life. What is the one thing I tried to do in 30, almost 33 years? The one thing, if there's, I've done a bunch of things, but if there's one thing that I sought to do with all my heart, I can tell you, as God my witness, is to encourage you to stand up for the truth. And that, my beloved friends, is the longing of my heart. It's the longing of my heart for me, and it's the longing of my heart for you. As dear beloved, for whom God privileged me, to serve in the past 33 years. Because I have nothing personally to give you. I have nothing to offer you, nothing in me. And that is why I sought to faithfully expound the Word of God. Why? Because only the Word of God can truly encourage you. My own words will discourage you, trust me. (laughs) My own efforts will be useless in the long run. And even if I give you words of motivation, I can tell you they are temporary at best. But the Word of God is where you find the only true encouragement and joy. And that is why I expound it as faithfully as I know how and expound upon the Word of the Apostle Paul, particularly to the next generation. As I look And passing on to the leadership as we look into the opportunity of seeing the wonderful young leadership in this church that is rising up, I want you to focus carefully on this particular epistle. Verse 1, he said, Therefore, my son, be strong. You remember, he's a son in the faith, he's not a physical son. Be strong in the faith. How? By gritting your teeth? No. Trying to pull yourself by your bootstraps? No. Uh, By self-affirmation? I can do this, I can do it, I can do, I can do, yes we can, yes we can? No, 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 no. 
but by becoming strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. The verb be strong here is in the imperative mood. Now, those of you grammarians, you understand what I'm talking about. It's in the imperative mood, which is making it a loving command to, from a father to a son, lovingly asking the son to do something that he knows it's wonderful for him. You know, there are a lot of paradoxes in the Scripture, and I preach a whole sermon on all the paradoxes in the Bible. I think the Christian faith is the only faith that has paradoxes. But one of the most baffling paradox in the Scripture, one that I will never understand fully until I go to heaven and be with the Lord, is how God is almighty, all-powerful, can do all things sovereign over all, and yet He entrusts the guarding of the truth, the guarding of the gospel, the guarding of the, of, of, of the Word of God to a fumbling and stumbling adopted children like us. That's a paradox I'll never understand until I get to heaven. We who are fumbling and stumbling can never do it in our own strength. That's the one thing that he makes clear here in verse 1. You can only guard and proclaim the message of the grace of Jesus Christ through the power of that grace. Please hear me right. We are saved by grace. We are justified by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We live by grace every moment of every day. We are empowered by grace to overcome and become overcomers. And now, he said, that grace will sustain you as you are upholding the truth and never giving up on the truth. Now, with that brief introduction, I get to the sermon. <laughs> and the sermon comes in the first 13 verses of 2 Timothy 2. Now, as we've been doing throughout this series of messages, I felt this compelled that it's important that you read it, and you read it loud, and allow it to be saturated in your heart and in your mind and in your will. And so you can get it in the Pew Bible, uh, page 1853, or you can watch, read from here. Whatever you do, stand up with me, and I'm going to let you read the Word of God. Please read with every ounce of your energy. You then.
Father God, what an honor and a privilege to have your word, to listen to your word, to speak your word, and to live in this world. Father, I pray, let your word sink deep into our hearts, and so that we be transformed, men, women, boys, and girls, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. At this point, I pointed out to you before, Paul begins the chapter by lovingly, lovingly, and gently commanding the son in the faith, the next generation leaders of the church, to draw his strength not from himself, not from his qualifications, not even from his gifts, but to draw all of his strength from the grace of God. How will he experience that grace of God? And Paul immediately goes on to explain that you can only experience that power of the grace of God in you when you invest this treasure, when you invest these truths in the lives of others. That's the only way you can truly experience the power of the grace of God when you pour it into somebody else. Beloved, listen to me. Don't miss what I'm going to tell you. Not only that Timothy to be strong in the grace of God, but he also needs to teach others to be strong in the grace of God. Verse 2. What you have heard from me before with many witnesses entrust this message to faithful men who will also teach others. The secret of having victory over timidity, the secret of having victory over fear, and I pointed out to you, this is something that Timothy was struggling with. And he's saying to him, the secret for victory over fear and timidity and anxiety and sorrow is to invest himself in others. (laughs) Listen to me. Discipling and mentoring somebody else is the greatest blessing that you can receive. Can I get an amen? Amen. By the same token, sitting on your gifts, all gifts, sitting on your blessed assurance will cause you all sorts of inner anguish. I am absolutely convinced that our faith is like electricity. It does not enter you and me fully. You notice why I said fully? Unless it can pass through us. Can I get an amen to that? Don't electrocute yourself (laughs) by sitting in hot water. (laughs) If you are unwilling to pass God's truth to the next generation, you are the one who misses out on the greatest blessing. Let me ask you a question. Just, this is not a test. It's not to trick you. Just, I, I want a show of hands. How many of you have heard the term apostolic succession? I said, well, fair bit of you heard the term apostolic succession. Well, the, the term as it's used uh, is that, for example, the Pope of the Catholic Church is the successor of Peter. That's what they 
believe. In the Catholic Church and other Orthodox churches and, and some other churches, they believe in this apostolic succession. For example, the patriarch of the Indian church called the Church of Martoma. He is the successor of Thomas, who founded the church in India. The Coptic Orthodox Church of Egypt, the Pope of Alexandria, he is supposedly the successor of the Apostle Mark, who founded the church in Egypt. And it goes on and on and on like this. Their idea is that the apostles zapped the head of somebody, who zapped the head of somebody, who zapped the head of somebody, and now we got these popes. Well, they kept going until this generation. They've transferred this power. Uh, the, now the power arrived to these individuals who are now in this position of authority. <laughs> but there is nothing in the Scripture about that. Nothing in the Word of God that support that. In fact, the first 300 years of Christianity, we have no idea who zapped whom. Ah, but the Bible teaches another form of apostolic succession. Are you listening? Say amen. amen. It's very important. It's in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. You can't miss it. 2.2.2, 2, 2, okay? 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. This is the true biblical apostolic succession, and it is the succession of biblical truth, not individuals' power or authority. And that's precisely what we are endeavoring to do in this church. <laughs> we pass to the next generation, not personal power. We have no power. The only authority we have is the authority of the Word of God. The only thing we have is the precious treasure, the gospel of Jesus. And my beloved friends, this cannot happen when we just sit in the pews. That cannot just happen by coming to church late and leaving early. Beloved, are you listening to me? I'm getting too old to be nice, okay? <laughs> that cannot happen when we see ourselves only as soldiers, as athletes, and as farmers. And as Nick prayed this morning, it is not the pastors, it's not those who are serving here, but for everyone in the pews, every one of you. And that is why we're going to have the new members' lunch afterward. And the first thing I say, please don't join the church if you're only planning to warm the pew. We want everybody to be involved. Amen? Why soldier? That's the first one. Why soldier? Most of you know, General, you know, and, 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 and all of you, I think, you know in this church, my deep, deep, deep appreciation for those who wear the uniform, wore the uniform of the United States of America. I deeply, deeply, <laughs> appreciate those who have serve this great country. Why? Because soldiers do not expect a soft or easy time. Soldiers 
take hardship as a matter of course, because soldiers take risks, because soldiers fight to win. I just am reading Eric Metaxas' new book. It's a manuscript, and, 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 it's, it's, and he wants me to endorse it. It's called Seven More Men, and one of them I have never heard of, Sergeant Alvin York. What a story. What a story. And I, I of course, you know, it's new to me, but most of you probably know this and because a film was made on it, on him for, back in 41. Because, beloved, listen to me. In the battle, there's only two people. There are the victors and there are the victims. If you want to win and have victory, you must learn the rules of warfare. If you want to win and have you, you, you have to get into the battlefield. You can't watch it on television. And the reason the secular forces are succeeding in diminishing our biblical worldview from our society today is because as true Christian believers surrendered the battlefield in the schools and in the universities, the unbelievers took over. And as Christians surrendered the battlefield in denominations and Christian institutions, the non-believers took over. And as Christians deserted the difficult areas in our society, non-believers took over. And that is why Paul said, as good soldier, endure hardship. Soldiers don't get entangled in civilian life. As good soldiers, we must not fall in the trap of pleasing people. Instead, only seek to please our command-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second way we are to faithfully pass on and transfer the truth of the gospel is found in the image of an athlete. Verse 5. Look at it with me. As, a, as spiritual athletes… We do not compete against each other. We don't compete against each other. A lot of people think that, but, but we don't. That's not what it is. We don't try to outperform each other. No, 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 no. But we are competing against the world, the flesh, and the devil. In ancient Greece, a winning athlete receives an evergreen wreath. But the athlete, no matter how good he is, no matter how accomplished he may be, he had to compete according to the rules. That's what Paul's saying here. As a matter of fact, the motto was, no rules, no wreath. Say that with me. No rules, no wreath. And while we are in the race of our lives, we must not run according to our own fancies and desires, not according to the rules of the new morality, not according to the rules of reinvented Christianity, not according to the rules of feel-good Christianity, not according to the rules of some false preacher and false teacher, not according to the rules of I will get to it if I feel like it. 
Am I stepping on some toes this morning? Yeah, praise God. Amen. Amen. No. The crown and the victory is awarded to those who compete according to the rules of the Word of God and the authority of the Scripture. The next imagery Paul gives us here that he uses for faithfully passing on the baton, passing on the baton of the truth of the gospel to the next generation is the hard-working farmer. Being a soldier on active duty, being an athlete willing to run according to the rules, and in verse 6, being a hard-working farmer. In the old days, of course, before the days of mechanization, uh, farmers did some back-breaking work. I mean, they tilled the soil, whether the soil was good or bad. They worked, uh, whether the weather is good or bad. <laughs> uh, they could not afford to sit back and say, well, you know, uh, I just don't feel like planting today. Or when the harvest is ready, he said, you know, I'm not just, I don't feel of the Lord that I need to be harvesting. Hmm. I tip my hat to farmers because they cannot afford to be lazy and just operate by their emotions, how they feel. If they don't feel like it, they don't do it. In the book of Proverbs, it says, the lazy farmer loses his harvest either because he's asleep when he ought to be reaping or because he's too lazy to plow the fields. Verse 6, look at it again. That's why Paul said, the hard-working farmer deserves the first fruit of his labor. That means that we are to be very careful in the tilling of the soil of our character, that we daily plant the seed of the Word of God, and that we harvest a crop of holiness in our lives. But that's not enough. That is not all. Listen carefully, because that's the burden of his heart in this passage here. We will not get a great harvest unless we do the same things in other people unless we till the soil and plant the seed and gather the harvest. And here's the summary. There will be no victory for the soldier who does not fight to win. There will be no wreath for the athlete who does not compete according to the rules. There will be no harvest for the farmer unless he tills the soil and plant the seed and gather the harvest. Look with me at verse 7, please. Because here he gives us a balance that enforces our faithfulness as being soldiers and athletes and farmers. What I mean by this is this. Here's what he said. Reflect on the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit is going to grant you understanding of everything. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, the Holy Spirit have written the book, the Bible, 
And the same person who wrote the book is the same person who dwells in us, and that's why you must never start your Bible reading before praying, Lord Jesus, open my eyes to see wonderful truth from your Word, and He will do, He will answer that one. Otherwise, there are some people who might read the Bible every day. You know why? Because they want to tick the box. Read the Bible, <laughs> done that. James said a person who does that is like a person who looks at a mirror, see what he looks like, and then he goes away, he forgets what he saw. Because that person is not reading and applying the Word of God into his or her life. That person who reads without meditating on the Word of God in his life is not going to take hold. And that is why, as I often say, pray, Holy Spirit, open my eyes. There are the, 27 years of reading the Bible through every year. There are some things I discover on the 27th, and I'm sure I'll be discovered if God spares me any more years. I'll be discovering new truth. Why? The Bible is just full of truth that I could never catch in 100 years. In the early hours of the morning, when I'm all alone with God, and that book is open on my lap. And I cry to the Holy Spirit to open my eyes and teach me from His Word, invariably, invariably. And I'll be reading something, and the Holy Spirit will stop me. And He would say, Michael, read that again. This encouragement is supposed to be for you. This affirmation is for you today. Oh, this rebuke <laughs> is for you. <laughs> because, and he pointed his fingers on things I needed to be rebuked about. This challenge is for you. This correction is for you. And then he goes on verses 8 to 13. Paul really just takes Timothy back to basics. This is 101. He takes him to basics. Those verses 8 to 13. Look at them with me, please. <laughs> Remember Jesus. What? How can Timothy forget Jesus? He said that he remembered his tears when he came to Christ. Coming to Christ with tears. How can he forget Jesus? How can you forget Jesus? How can I forget Jesus? Huh? Hello? Don't jump the gun on me and say, well, that's impossible. Let me just jog your memory. You know, when you face a problem, a crisis pops up all of a sudden, and you start making decisions and very quickly, and you begin to think, what's the ramification? What's the implication? What are the con consequences? And you're thinking about, are you thinking of Jesus? No. Hello. What does He want me to do? What steps does He lead me to take? What decisions does He want me to make to glorify Him? First and foremost, 
or let's get closer to home, okay? When you have a humdinger argument with your wife or your husband, now you obviously don't have that. I mean, you're looking at me like saying, what are you talking about? We don't do that in our home. Well, God bless you. We do. <laughs> and you're getting into a humdinger argument with your spouse, and, and, and the first thing you think about or the first thing that happens is that all your def- self-defense mechanisms start rising up to the surface. You're not thinking of Jesus, are you? Come on now. <laughs> Listen, I don't mind conviction, but I don't want you to switch off. <laughs> self-defense. What do you mean? That's what I do. <laughs> the last thing you're thinking of is Jesus. Somebody said if there's an epitaph written over Israel of the Old Testament, it would be, go something like this. How soon they forgot <laughs> the Lord. Really, I'm going to read the Bible. How soon they forgot. God will come and will do great. Oh, they just, oh, yeah, well, yeah, but what did he do for me lately? And Paul is telling Timothy, remember Jesus not only because He is the heart of the good news, not only He is the heart of the good deposit, not only because He is the essence of the gospel, but He's also a role model that you can only follow by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love it when we say, I'm a follower of Jesus. We used to have a, there was a politician many years ago, no names. He was speaking to his denomination. He said, I'm standing here with a great deal of pride to tell you that I'm a follower of Jesus. Huh? That guy? Yeah. Listen, beloved, we can't be followers of Jesus if we try. Without the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, without His strength, without His grace, we'll stumble in the first step we take. Remember Jesus. He is risen from the dead. That's His divinity. He is the Son of David. That's His humanity. Remember Jesus who died on the cross, but He did not stay on that cross. Remember Jesus who was buried in the tomb, but He did not stay in the tomb. Remember Jesus whose Good Friday followed by Easter Sunday. Remember Jesus whose Gethsemane was followed by the resurrection. Remember Jesus, Timothy. Remember Jesus, Robert. Remember Jesus, Sue. Remember Jesus, Fred. Remember Jesus, Joe. Remember Jesus, Susan. Remember Jesus as you are soldiering for Him. Remember Jesus as you compete as an athlete for Him. Remember Jesus uh, as your labor as a farmer for Him. Remember Jesus as you strive to fight temptation by His power and His strength and His victory. Remember uh, His pain and suffering uh, all alone. Remember Jesus uh, that he who suffered alone is also saying to you that your suffering uh, is only for a season, that your pain will not last forever. Be- the time of coming, Timothy, when all of the strain and the struggle will be over. The time is coming when the tears will be no more. The time is coming when the heavy weight of sin will be no more. Then the apostle concludes 
this particular section, section with a hymn. Most historians believe that this was a hymn that was sung in the early church. If we die with Him, we shall live with Him. If we die to self, if we die to self-gratification, if we die to self-centeredness, we will rise with Him in glory. If we endure, we shall reign with Him forever. If we persevere and stand up our biblical grounds, if we do not give up the battle, we will be honored by God Himself. Ah, but if we deny Him, He will deny us. Do you think you found that hard to take? It's the truth. If we deny Him, if we are unfaithful, He remains faithful to Himself. Did you get that? Here's something, as I'm concluding, I am begging you, do not miss. And the reason I'm doing this is because there's a whole movement among certain evangelicals who preach something called hyper-grace. You say, Michael, what is hyper-grace? Well, let me tell you because I'm glad you asked. (laughs) These dear people say, this is talking to believers, that you can sin to your heart's content and don't worry about it. God's grace will cover it. God's grace will cover it. You don't need to confess. You don't need to repent. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to acknowledge your sin. Grace will cover it. And they use this verse as a cover. And so Paul said, if we are unfaithful, Christ remains faithful. He cannot deny himself, meaning that he just will forgive you. He's obligated to forgive you. Isn't that amazing? They say, here's the license we've been looking for. (laughs) They're looking for it. He covers all the shortfalls. Don't worry about it. Well, he does. But when there is an acknowledgement, when there is confession, when there is repentance, when there is such hatred of sin in us, I'm not talking about in us. Beloved, this could not be further from the truth. Here's what Paul is saying, really. Listen carefully, listen carefully. If we are unfaithful to Him, He will be faithful to Himself. He will always be faithful to His promises. What are these promises? If we deny Him, He will deny us. That's the promise. And He's faithful to His promise. Here's a much better translation. If we disbelieve Him, He remains faithful. He cannot deny who He is. He cannot deny who He is. In other words, God will do all things consistent with being Himself. The one and only thing that God cannot do, cannot do, cannot do. A precious young person here in the church just asked me a few weeks ago, is there something God cannot do? I said, yes. He cannot sin, and he cannot be untrue to himself. That's the one thing God cannot do, is deny himself or be contrary to himself. He remains forever himself. Some of these false teachers and preachers misinterpret this verse and say, well, in the end, 
God is going to feel sorry for people, and He's going to let them all come into His heaven. Really? What that would be contrary to Himself. That would be God contradicting Himself. In fact, God's faithfulness to Himself is demonstrated in His justice as much as it is demonstrated in His love. His love says, come to me. Come to me in repentance and faith, and I'll forgive you. His justice says, you reject me. You reject my truth. I will deny you before my Father in heaven and His holy angels. His love and justice are two sides of the same coin. His love and His justice are the evidence of His faithfulness. And that is why every believer under the sound of my voice, whether it be in this beautiful building or watching around the world, every believer at the sound of my voice must ask themselves the question, Am I passing on this truth to other faithful men and women, boys and girls? Am I passing that truth? Am I soldiering? Am I running the race according to the rules? Am I tilling the soil, planting the seed, gathering the harvest? Please, let those questions haunt you. But for those who are also under the sound of my voice, whom I never taken the first step of coming to Jesus in brokenness and humility. Say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And if you haven't done that, there is no greater time to do that than today, this very moment, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Whatever conviction the Holy Spirit who wrote the book brought to you. Please don't shrug it. Respond. And I am absolutely certain there are as many people here, the different conviction. God speaks to us differently. We come from different places and different situations. And the Holy Spirit is convicting us differently. But whatever it may be, please, let me plead with you. Don't put it off. Respond. Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your perseverance. We thank you for loving us all the way to the end. And Father, I pray for that person who may be tempted to say, I give up. May that person be strengthened today. May no one at the sound of my voice will give in to the spirit of discouragement, but of courage, love, and self-control. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and praise the Lord together as we prepare our hearts to the Lord's table.